Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. We're in the book of Mark. We're continuing our deep dive into Mark. So we're going to be in Mark 11 today. Uh, you can flip open there, but just know we're not going to get there for a little bit of time. Uh, we got some philosophical road work that we need to uh, lay before we get there. And so uh, for you type A's in the room, I promise we will get there. Uh, but I just need you to know we got some work we, uh, we need to do. Uh, last week, we talked a little bit about this idea of being bifurcated in your faith and how we shouldn't be, shouldn't be bifurcated. Um, and... Uh, and that simply, you know, kind of means rather than committing to one thing or another, we end up committing to numerous things that force us to not take our faith as seriously as we should. And as I was putting the message together, I was just, you know, I really enjoyed putting that message together and giving that message and all that stuff. And so I'm talking with Jeff afterwards, and he was like, hey, man, great sermon, buttering me up. He said, I think you said the word bifurcate about a hundred times, though. He said, I don't even know what that word really means. No, he knew what the word meant. But, um, but anyway... That's kind of where we, uh, where we focused. And at the end of the day, largely all of this has to do with how obedient we are to God, right? Living a life of bifurcation simply means we're not being as obedient to the Lord as we probably should be. And wouldn't you know it, today we get to talk about the idea of authority, submission, and of course, obedience. So when I was in high school, uh, this is about 2002-ish, I would, I would say, uh, I, I wouldn't say I had a problem with obedience as much as all of my friends had a problem with obedience. Anybody else there like the rule follower in the group, right? None of you, you guys were all the rule breakers? Cool. All right, a couple rule followers uh, in, the, uh, in the room. And anytime I talk about uh, I talk about my friends, right, from high school. Largely, there's two of them that I'm talking about. I was very popular. Um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, so my friends were largely like fire, gasoline, and I was like water, right? That was just kind of the makeup of the, uh, of the, of the three of us. Um, and uh, each of us kind of had our, our different role to, uh, a role to play. As a matter of fact, towards the end of high school, they just stopped referring to me as Peter at all, and they just started calling me the voice of reasons. They would come up with these ridiculous things, ridiculous ideas, and I would always be like, guys, we shouldn't do that. They would ignore me, and then I would somehow turn into the driver for the event, right? And so... Um so, so anyway, I'm the voice of reason. Also, so this one night in particular, gasoline wasn't with us, so it was just me and fire. And um, we, uh, we, the, the the fair was in town. The county fair was in town. Merced County Fair, right? And so for me, growing up in a small town, very thankful to grow up in a small town and not just be entertained all the time by all the things. But man, this was something new. Right? This is something that we got to do. And so uh, me, and my, me and my friend, we, we, we went to the fair. And we went to the fair for a very specific reason. Not just to hang out with our friends or whatever. But my friend um, was kind of like, kind of like talking with this girl for a while, right? And he had never kissed a girl up until this point. And so like, he was like, Pete, tonight's the night. I'm going to kiss this girl. I'm going to kiss this girl. I'm like, you, you go, man. You do, you do your thing. And so we show up to the fair. And one of the things you need to recognize is that in this story, um, we are both uh, wearing Wranglers, okay? Because when you go to the fair, um, you have to kind of play the part of the fair, right? At least where I'm from. And so we wore our Wranglers that we wore once a year to to the fair. Um, and then uh, beyond that, um, we were wearing cowboy shirts that we thought at least looked like cowboy shirts. We were, wearing, we were wearing our hats, and I didn't have like boots or anything like that, so it was probably what was cool at the time. I don't know, K-Swiss. It was probably like wearing K-Swiss or rainbow sandals or something like that with the whole thing. So anyway, we get there, and we're, we're moseying around the fair, right? And um, 
uh, all of a sudden this girl shows up and uh, that, that he had had a crush on. And so I'm third wheeling it for a while. And we're, we're just kind of hanging out. We met some other friends. And then uh, as normally happens with, with us being high school students, um, we, uh, we ran out of money at the fair, right? We spent all our money on, you know, deep fried Snickers or whatever you spend your money on at the fair. And um, so what else do you do? Because it's not curfew yet, so we're not going home. There's no way you come home early from doing something that you have permission to do, even if you're out of money. So we're like, let's go look at farm animals, right? Because that's what you do at the fair when you're out of money. So we go and we're looking at pigs, we're looking at cows, we're at all this stuff. And the whole time, my buddy and this girl are just like, you know, doing the whole flirty thing, whatever. We end up at the show tent, right? And so there's bleachers all over the place, and there's an aroma of the, of the show tent coming off of the, uh, the field that's out there. And my buddy and this girl are like 20 feet away, me and some of my other friends, we're, we're sitting on the other side of the bleachers. And all of a sudden, I look, and, and my friend in his cowboy hat and the aroma of the, uh, the show tent and the, uh, the faint music of washed up bands playing in the bandstand playing in the background, um, like he leans in and he kisses this girl. And he's pumped, and I'm pumped. Like I stand up on the stands. I'm like doing like the silent like celebration thing like yeah right and so uh so then after that we um we go home we go back to to my house my parents house um and we're gonna crash there for tonight and so you know we take off our hat and we take off our, our chaps and all those we were wearing chaps um and uh he decides that we should sneak out of the house he decides that he's like you know hey we should sneak out of the house and um, we should go see this girl. And I'm like, you're using a lot of wheeze right now, bro. Um, but she happened to live like three minutes away from me. And at this point, I'm saying, bro, this is a dumb idea. Like, we shouldn't do this, right? I'm trying to throw as much water onto fire as possible at this point. But you guys have seen those videos of like something that's ablaze and the guy standing there with the garden hose not doing anything. Like, that's me and my buddy at this point. Um, and, uh, and so anyway, I cave to peer pressure. We decide to... Uh, to sneak out and we stuff our beds, right, with pillows like you do, like the movies say is, it's indestructible. There's no way anybody could ever find, find that out. We go out to his car and we roll his car down the driveway so my parents don't wake up. We push it even a little ways down the street and then we'd start the, start the car. We drive to this girl house. It's probably like midnight, one o'clock or something like that. And so I'm waiting in the car as my friend goes up to this girl's window and he's like tapping on the window and like they're having a conversation through the screen. I, mean, I don't even know what you're talking about, his Wranglers or something like that. And then all of a sudden, uh, my, my phone starts ringing. This is never good when it's midnight or one o'clock in the morning and your phone starts ringing. You're not where you're supposed to be. And of course, it's my dad. And at this point, there's no ghosting dad at this point. There's no like, you know what, I'll call you back later, right? It's like, no, you answer this phone call. So I answer the phone call and my dad is just like, where are you? And that like groggy, angry, you woke me up in the middle of the night, or I woke up in the middle of the night, you weren't here, where are you now? I have to deal with this before I go to work tomorrow uh, voice. Um, and so I'm like, I'm around the corner, we'll come home. So we go home and um, um, he gives the, uh, we'll talk about this in the morning talk when we, uh, when we get back. And at that point I'm expected to go to sleep, which didn't happen. Um, but then I have to get up early the next morning because I had to leave for my, uh, my well-paying lifeguard job. Um, while, uh, while he's, while my buddy fire, I almost said his name, uh, sleeps in, uh, and my dad tells me once I get up, like I get up, my dad tells me you're grounded for a week. I'm like, 
okay, I can deal with that. I broke the rules. I shouldn't have broken the rules. Like, I can, I can deal with that. I thought I got off easy. And so later on that day, after I get home from, from lifeguarding, um, I, uh, I, I log up AOL Instant Messenger, okay? This is the era that we're talking about. Raise your hands if you're on AOL Instant Messenger. Good, perfect. Half of you are lying. Um, so I log up, log on to AOL Instant Messenger, and he's on there, and I'm like, bro, how did my parents react when you woke up? Because right, he was one of my best friends, so him staying in my house longer than I did was normal. Um, and he was like, oh, it was great. Like, hold on, time out. There's nothing great that should have come from this, because I had thrown him completely under the bus when I got home, right? It was like, no. Like, I told him this was a bad idea. I told him he shouldn't have done this. He snuck out anyway. We broke the rule. Like, it was, it was fire's fault, right? Um, and so he's like, no, it was great. He said, I woke up, your mom made me waffles? I was like, what? My mom made you, I told, so, and he was like, I told him what happened, and he said, I got changed, and I gave him a hug and sent me home, and I was like, did they call your parents? He was like, no, not as far as I know. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm getting punished for your sins, um, because I think I got burnt toast as I left. Um, not really, that's probably how I felt. Here's where all of this leads, okay? All of this leads to, I knew the ramifications of my actions. I knew what I was doing was not okay, yet I chose to do those things anyway. I knew the house rules. I knew my curfew. I knew lying to my parents by stuffing my bed like I was asleep was a terrible idea and also, obviously, against our rules. But here's the thing. Sneaking out of the house was something that was never gone over in my life as a rule that I was supposed to follow, ever. Right? It's not like we had a family meeting and we sat down with my parents and me and my brother and they were like, okay, rule one, don't break curfew. Rule two, don't sneak out after dressing up like a cowboy and going to the fair until you can, your friend can go kiss this girl, right? Like, like, it was not, like, like that was never spelled out like a speed limit that I had to adhere to. The expectation was that we live in a house where there is a level of reverence and respect for our parents. And because of that, all of the rules don't need to be spelled out. Okay? All of the rules have been spelled out simply because we have a reverence for my parents and we understand what it is that we are supposed to adhere to. So even though it wasn't spelled out, I knew the repercussions of my actions and still did it anyway. I think if you think about your life, I think that all of us could, can identify times when we knew what we were doing was, was going to have repercussions, when we knew what we were doing was wrong, however we chose to do them anyway, because all of us break rules from time to time. And sometimes it's because we simply didn't know the rule. Right? Other times it's because we think the rule is stupid, and other times we just do it because we either think we won't get caught, or if we do get caught, that we're simply okay with the consequences of that action. So our question this morning actually forces us to think through whether or not we simply submit to rules because it is right, or do we submit to rules because someone else is exercising authority over us? And I think there is a difference and a distinction between those two things. So we're going to get philosophical here for a second. The truth is, is that in all of this, we, uh, we as Americans oftentimes have a difficult time with authority. And the reason is because we value and enjoy freedom in a very, very real way. So when somebody says, you do not have freedom to do that, you're like, I'm American. I can do what I want. I have the freedom to be able to do the things that I want to do. And how you look at freedom has everything to do with, has everything to do with how it is that you are going to respond at it, or respond to it, rather. Here's what I mean. When you place man at the center of all things instead of God, 
If you, man is at the center of all things instead of God, authority will always be accepted uneasily and obedience will even require kind of a certain level of violence because it is subjective to what individuals feel is right and wrong. So when man is at the center, everything is subjective. If I was at the center of the world, I could go out of the house at any time I wanted simply because I wanted to do it and who is anybody else to tell me that I can't do it subjectively, I am right all of the time. Why? Because I felt that way and I want to do it. There's a, difference to, there's a difference between submitting to authority and being obedient to a high calling. A very real difference. Submission to authority has everything to do with positional leadership. You submit to an authority because there is someone in positional leadership above you. They have the right to use that authority over us, and so because of that, we will willingly submit to it. Being obedient, though, to a higher calling has everything to do with self-denial, because we are choosing to sacrifice of our own freedoms in order to adhere to a moral code as spelled out by our Creator in the Bible. Hey, this is what I mean. We've got to press in a little more, little more groundwork. This is what I mean. Our entire worldview... Our entire concept of man, of freedom, of rights, of privileges, obedience, authority, all of these things center around who is at the center of all things. If you have zero belief in God, if you're here this morning, you have zero belief in God. Or if you're here this morning and, and, and you believe in something supernatural, but you haven't maybe done enough legwork in order to seek out what that deity is that you believe in, then in your own mind, you will end up at the center of all things 100% of the time. Why? Because we're selfish. We want our lives to be easier. We're going to end up at the center of all of the things, meaning every decision that you make will, will be based in your subjective conscience. Okay? If you're a note taker, write that down. Subjective conscience. No one can tell me what is good. No one can tell me what is bad. No one can tell me what is right. And no one can tell me what is wrong. All truth at this point becomes subjective because there is no moral law that you are being obedient to. Only authority that you're submitting to, positional authority that you have to submit to. This is what is currently happening in our world with the idea of gender ideology. If God is not the creator of all things, including humanity, and we're simply a bunch of cells that got together after mom and dad loved each other very, very much, the pronouns that people use to identify themselves are up for grabs. It doesn't matter. Why? Because there is no truth and all things are subjective. Everything at that point becomes subjective. We can move with every thought and feeling we may have because we are placed at the center of all things. We are the most important thing of anything. Even as we consider this weekend, Sanctity of Life weekend, this is what's been happening since Roe versus Wade was signed back in 1973. Okay, 11 years later, what happened is uh, President Ronald Reagan began the annual proclamation of life. It's going to be on September 22nd, or no, January 22nd. We'd be really early or late. January 22nd every year, he made the proclamation that it was going to be that in September. Um, so 11 years after the signing of Roe versus Wade, that's when we decided, you know, sanctity of life. Life begins at conception, and not just because of science, but because that's how God created it. 
We are not at the center of the universe, but when man places his own desires above a moral God, we begin to do some pretty ridiculous things, like consider it okay to abort the least of these in the womb of a mother. We are a church who, because of the fact that we consider God at the center and not man at the center of all things, we believe in life and that God has knitted us together perfectly. So let's flip the philosophy on its head then. If that's what happens when man is at the center of all things, let's remove that and place God at the center of all things. If that is the case, and you're doing your best to adhere to God's commands and scripture for your life, to God's moral law, you're living in such a way that would honor him, then most of the decisions that you make should be based in not subjective conscience, but objective truth. What do we believe is objective truth? Scripture, God, Jesus, Spirit. So with God at the center of everything, everybody has a yardstick with which they measure morality, with which they measure truth, with which they measure right living. So if I believe God is at the center of all things, and I believe that the Bible is inerrant in everything that it affirms, then I also believe in Psalm 139.14. Or Psalm 139.14 says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So I believe that in a very real way. Why? Because the Bible is my yardstick. The Word of God, objective truth, is my yardstick. Or Genesis 1.27, where it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I believe that. But then the questions start coming, right, Christian? Well, you're such a bigot. Who are you to say what my gender is? Who are you to say that I can't kill my child when it's inside of me? The reality is, is I'm not a bigot. The reality is, is I'm opposed to abortion. The center of all things is. And I place my reality and the objective truth on the center of all things. The center of all things, the triune God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the one who laid out the moral law. This is not my subjective conscience that is saying that you are wrong. It is God's objective truth. When we keep God at the center of all things, we still have to submit to positional authority. Be aware of but obedience to God and his moral law trump positional authority when they are at odds with each other 100% of the time. So we follow God's law and not man's law. And all of us have made up laws on our heads that from time or time again allow us to break God's law, allow us to break rules in the Bible, simply because our paradigm, our worldview, isn't always seen 100% through Scripture. We make wrong decisions. We sin every single day. Here's how I know. Every single one of you in here breaks the speed limit. It's true, right? All of, you, all of you have broken the speed limit. And you can be like me, and you can try to rationalize the whole thing by saying, I'm just keeping up with the flow of traffic, which is what I tell my kids when they're like, Dad, how fast are you going? I'm like, I'm keeping up with the flow of traffic. Shut your eyes. Don't look at the speedometer, right? Or... You can recognize that God in his word in Romans 13 calls us to submit to the authority who those, to, of those who is put into place of our government. So if the government tells you that the speed limit is 65, we as followers of God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, are supposed to submit to that. Why? Because it's also God's law. So we have positional authority. Okay? And beyond that, we're submitting to a moral law that is laid out by a God who is very, very good. So all that to be said. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27. This is what it said. They arrived in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. 
time out real quick. Chief priests, elders of the law, um, or chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders. Okay, this is all kind of the same group. There's different like pieces and here and there. They're all part of the same organization. I'm going to talk about teachers of the law and Pharisees interchangeably. Okay, so if you're new to the things of faith, if I say teachers of the law or if I say Pharisee, we're talking about the same group of people. Okay, so. Verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus replied, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. This is John the Baptist. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin... They feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Okay, so the first part of this passage that we're covering today has everything to do with authority and everything to do with power. When you look at the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, this is what they, these guys were hung up on, positional authority. And so right before this, the Pharisees, they're asking, by, 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 by whose authority? By what authority are you doing these things? Right before this, Jesus had just come in, and he was teaching things that were contrary to what they wanted him to teach. He was breaking rules. He was breaking commandments, even that they said, right? Like, don't work on the Sabbath, and they're popping off pieces of grain and, and eating. And they were like, you're harvesting. You're harvesting. Jesus is like, we're eating. Knock it off. Right? But besides that, like, he comes into the synagogue, a couple days before this, this is actually the previous story, he comes into the synagogue, and what had happened is all of these Pharisees, these religious leaders, had allowed these people to come into the synagogue and like set up shop. And like, hey, you can sell your goods, you can sell whatever it is that you want to sell. And they were making money off of people who were coming to worship God. And not just making money off of people, gouging people, right? These people had come and they were expected to give sacrifices to the Lord. This is Old Testament, right? Expected to give sacrifices to the Lord. Okay. Well, if they showed up and they traveled a long distance to get to this synagogue to be able to make a sacrifice, they didn't have the dove or the lamb or whatever it is, the ram, whatever it was that they needed to sacrifice at that point. So they got there and they're like, we'll just buy something when we get to the synagogue. Well, what they did is they price gouged. And they're like, cost of a dove is one shekel. It's actually 10 shekels, right? I don't know if that's true or not, but just wanted to put it into our language. Think about when you go to, like, I don't know, 49ers Cowboys football game, Okay. Go Niners. I had to work it in somehow, okay? So, but you go to a football game, a baseball game, whatever, right? And you're on your way and you're like, you know what? Should we stop for food now or should we just get to the game? And mom and dad are like, we're not stopping for food. Dad's like, if you have to use the restroom, I got a cup that you can use, right? Like all of those different things. We're not stopping. We'll eat when we get to the game. And you get to the game and you realize there is no reason I should have waited this long to buy my food. Because I got to the game and something that would have cost me $4, nothing costs $4 anymore, something that would cost me $8 outside of the game is now going to cost me $20 inside of the game, right? Why? Because they control everything there. This is the same thing that is currently happening with all these people outside of the temple courts. So Jesus is upset. He comes in. He flips over tables. Beyond that, they are more peeved, more irritated um, by Jesus because he's teaching things that are going to cause the Jews to stop believing in the Mosaic law. Okay, Mosaic Law. We talked about this when we went through the book of Exodus. Okay, the Mosaic Law is the law handed down by Moses. Okay, think about the Ten Commandments. There's also a greater law beyond that that they were required to adhere to. 
So all the Pharisees are like, man, if this Jesus keeps teaching the things that he's teaching, we're going to be in trouble because they're going to stop putting their faith in the, the, this religion largely that we are overseeing, this religion that we are running, and they're going to start putting their faith in this guy, Jesus, who is calling himself the Messiah. Here's the issue. As long as the Jews stayed faithful to, to the Mosaic law, to what the religious leaders were teaching, they retained control. So when you're thinking about the Pharisees, when you're thinking about the teachers of the law, this is how you need to be thinking. They, they just wanted to remain in authority. They wanted to retain power. They wanted to retain all of that control. If they stopped, though, the teachers of the law would find themselves powerless, and this wasn't okay. okay this is the main sin the Pharisees are dealing with, power and control. Their ego wouldn't let, let go long enough to realize that the one that they were waiting for, the one they were teaching the nation of Israel, the Jews, about this guy who was going, who was going to come, the Messiah of the world, was right in front of them, literally right in front of them. And so their first question, then, is one that deals with positional authority. They say, by what authority do you do these things? And then they followed up with that. Do you, like, 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 who gave you the authority to do this? This reads kind of like a, like a co-worker asking you if the boss gave you permission to do something, right? Like, did the boss say you could do color copies instead of black and white? Because those are like 10 cents more. I don't know if you know that. The boss, like, positionally speaking, is this okay. And Jesus is not about to get trapped by these guys, so he asked them about John the Baptist's baptism. This is not John the Baptist getting baptized. This is John the Baptist baptizing people, okay? So when you read that just for, for the sake of, of clarity. And they say, was it from heaven or was it human origin? Where did it come from? Essentially repeating back to them, well, who, who, gave, who gave that guy the authority to do what he was doing? Jesus is like, let's remove the question off of me and let's put it on to John the Baptist. So they huddle up, right? The Pharisees, they huddle up in their, in their robes and their curly hair and they have a discussion at that point. And they essentially say, if we say heaven, if we say this authority came from heaven, then Jesus will ask, well, why is it that you don't believe in me then? Right? Because John the Baptist points straight to Jesus the entire time. Okay, so they can't say heaven. That's off limits because then they would just be lending credibility to Jesus at that point. But if they say from earth, all the people around them are going to get upset at them because they thought that John was a prophet. All of the Jews who were hanging out, they thought John was a prophet. And say so they do the only thing that guilty people do. They say, I don't know. Guilty people do this all the time. Don't believe me? Ask your two-year-old when he has cookies all around his face. Like, who ate the last cookie? I don't know. Right? Guilty people say that. So Jesus is like, cool. Then I'm not going to tell you about what authority I'm doing these things either then. If you can't answer my question, I'm not going to answer yours. And so the Pharisees have this idea of positional authority so stuck in their heads that, that they had forgotten that as followers of God, that we're not only supposed to follow the rules that govern us, but beyond that, we're supposed to follow God. We're supposed to do the things that are right. We're supposed to be obedient to him because they answered to a higher calling than simply the rules set forth by the head teacher. And so Jesus is like, I'm not going to answer you guys. I can see him at this point just like kind of turning away from him, and now he's going to start teaching again in Mark chapter 12. This is what it says. It says, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, 
He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Okay, press pause real quick. Okay, so, so far in this story, we have a landowner, a guy who was like, I'm going to go buy a vineyard, makes, like, buys this vineyard, cultivates this vineyard, puts a watchtower in for safety, put walls around there for safety, creates a wine press so they can create wine when it's time to create wine. And he's like, you know what? My job is done. And this would have been common back in that time. My job is done. I'm going to find some renters to come take care of this entire thing so I don't have to touch it, right? Typical landowner. He's like, hey, someone come work this land for me. And so it, it, it comes harvest time, and the landowner's like, hey, that's my land. I want, I want some of the fruit of that land. And so we start sending servant after servant after servant after servant. It reads that there's three in here, but don't forget it says, and he sent many others. Okay, so he sent a whole bunch of people, and sometimes they got beat up, okay? Sometimes they got beat up shamefully, and other times they just simply killed the guy. Okay, so that's what we currently have, have going on there. Verse 6, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken a parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. All right, there's a lot of things to pull from this parable, from this story. And if you've ever read read this story and thought, I wonder who Jesus is talking about, Jesus is talking about Israel, and Jesus is talking about the tenants at this point are represented by the Jewish leaders. So here's kind of the, the, the metaphor. The vineyard is Israel. Okay, when you think vineyard, we're talking about Israel. The owner of the vineyard, God. The tenants, Jewish leaders, the servants, prophets. Okay, think back to Old Testament, major, minor prophets. Those are the prophets, right? Jeremiah, Nehemiah, Micah, Obadiah, all of those Obadiahs, okay? And of course, the heir in this metaphor is, is Jesus. Okay, and so Jesus here is saying that God put not just this earth here, He didn't just put the earth here. He put this entire people group, the nation of Israel, together. He created this nation, his chosen people. These are my, these are all of my, my people. And he made sure that the vineyard was established. He made sure that Israel was established and safe and guarded and ready to produce wine as soon as it was time to make some wine. And he entrusted the entire thing to the teachers of the law. He set up the Israelites, like the nation of Israel. He set all of them up and said, these are the teachers of the law. Do the things that they are supposed to do. But as soon as God sent his prophets, again, think back to Old Testament, the servants to get some of the fruit from the teachers of the law, the leaders of the nation of Israel decided, nope, I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what the owner says. I don't care what his servants say. I don't care about any of that. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to beat him up. I'm going to slander him. I'm going to kill him. Just read any of the books of the prophets back in the Old Testament. 
And they were all hated in their own time. They were all beat up. They were all killed. They were all all of those things. So God finally had enough and decided, you know what? I'm going to now send my son at this point. Okay, the wording here, heir, reads a whole lot more. The the wording in the Greek reads a whole lot more like only begotten son than it actually kind of reflects here. So owners like, God is like, I'm going to send my son. And he sent his son, and so, so the tenants is gonna, are going to hate him as well. And they decided they were going to kill him off. And as they kill him off, the entire vineyard would then become theirs. Their inheritance would be control over the entire vineyard, the entire nation of Israel. That was going to be their inheritance. The tenants, the ones who own the vineyard, the religious leaders, the entire nation of Israel, if we can just get rid of this guy, as it talks about the end of this passage... If we can just figure out a way to kill this guy, then the entire nation of Israel is going to be under our control, under our power. We will have now positional authority over everybody else. The leaders of Israel, the religious teachers, they no longer cared about anything else except who was in charge. And as far as they were concerned, they were the ten, like this was their land. This was their area. They were the ones working at it. They were the ones who had to harvest everything. They were, the, they were the ones doing the things that they needed to do to tend it. This was their land, and no one was going to come and tell them how it is that they were going to run things. The religious leaders decided that no one, none of them, not any of the prophets, and especially not this Jesus guy who had no positional authority over them, was going to tell them how to behave when it came to teaching others about God. And because of that, they're going to kill the son and throw him out of the vineyard. Here's the cool thing about it. This is exactly what happens on Good Friday. So go to Good Friday. We call it Good Friday. This is when Jesus died on the cross, right? Good Friday. The religious leaders, they take this son because he has threatened their very way of life. And they refuse to to submit to the authority of someone who had no positional leadership over them and threw him out of the chosen nation of Israel. Here's the cool thing. What the devil intends for evil, God redeems for good, right? And so because of that, these religious leaders, when they take Jesus to die on a cross, they throw him out of the nation of Israel. What does God do? He's like, that's fine. You can throw him out of the nation of Israel because I have bigger plans for it anyway. I have bigger plans for my son anyway. I don't just care about this vineyard. I care about the entirety of the world. So Paul tells us in his book of Galatians 3, 28, it says, this is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. It's no longer be about being part of the nation of Israel and following rules because a Pharisee told you to do so, because a teacher of the law told you to do so. Now we get the opportunity to submit to God because he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for all of our sin. And as the religious leaders threw him out of Israel, God said, that's okay. I got bigger plans. The entire world that I'm concerned with today. If you're a Christian in the room, your faith is not about submitting to God simply because the rules of the game force you to do so. If your faith looks like you just following a whole bunch of rules, and that's kind of the makeup of it, simply following those rules like not cussing and and coming to church and giving exactly 10% of your income, can I tell you, you're currently in the same boat as the Pharisees. And that can feel hard, especially for you type A's. Like, I'm a type A, so I'm a rule follower. I told you the story. Like, Like, I am water to an extreme. Like, nope, can't break rules. 
And I can feel harsh because I'm like, well, Scripture tells me to give 10%. Actually, what Scripture tells you is to be generous with your money. What Scripture tells me I'm supposed to go to church. Yeah, you are supposed to go to church. You are supposed to be actually, what Scripture tells you is you're supposed to be a part of the body of believers. And Scripture goes on and on and on. We, we, we just boil it down to these little rules that it is that each and every one of us are supposed to follow. If we just follow these rules, then I'll have a good relationship. We wonder why it is that we just still feel like dry and empty inside. And we're just like, but, but I thought I had this relationship with Jesus. I mean, compare it to a relationship with your spouse, right? Like if you're married in here and you're like, okay, I got 10 rules I got to follow. And if I could follow these 10 rules, I'm going to have a great relationship with my spouse. And you think to yourself, okay, here's one rule. Hey, I'm going to, anything that I, that, that I earn as income, it's going to be not just my income, it's going to be my spouse's. Good rule. It's a great rule. And you go on and on and on. And you figure out all these rules is going to make your life easier. And that's great. All of these things in themselves are good things. That is not the relationship, though, that you have with your spouse. Those are rules that you have made to make the relationship a little bit easier to manage. And oftentimes, this is just what we do with our faith on a regular basis. And don't get me wrong, these are good things. Please come to church. Please be generous with your money. Please don't cuss. Do all of these these things. But like so many things that were taught by Jesus, it's less about what you're doing on the outside. It's less about the external things that we're doing and more about the state of your heart on the inside. There is so much more for us when we don't submit to God simply because he has positional authority. But when we are obedient to him because we revere him as good. And we want to do our best to set ourselves upon the cornerstone of Christ as that scripture ends. The cornerstone, if you've been a part of church for a long time, the cornerstone is a stone that every other rock, every other piece of foundation should get lined up against. Everything. That's how you make the house square. And if, if one of these rocks was off by only one degree, the entire house will not stand the way it's supposed to. The entire house will not stand the way that it's intended to. Our job is to align ourselves on that cornerstone every single day. I'm going to get as close as I can. I'm going to live as righteous as I can. I'm going to, I'm going to be as much like Jesus as I possi- possibly can. Why? Not because I have to, but because I want to live in obedience to a God who loves me greatly and was willing to send his son to die on a cross for me. But man, every single day, we do our best to set, our, set ourselves in that cornerstone, and it is skewed all of the time. We are not square. I'll wrap up with this. In my study, I came across an incredible quote. It's helping outline the entire passage, right? And it's talking about, talking about this parable, and it's talking about how, you know, the tenants, they're, like, they are recognizing these people who are coming. And so this is what it says. It says, it's not through their failure to recognize the son that they killed him. That would have been pardonable. Like, they rec- like if they were like, I don't know who this guy is, they're threatening my existence, they're threatening this kingdom that we've set up. They're threatening this vineyard. That would have been partable. It was, in, as it was, as in the parable, precisely because they recognized him for who he was. That's what's not pardonable. We reject the claims of Christ, not because we misunderstand them, but because we understand them only too well. Here's the reality. Most of us in this room understand what it means to follow Jesus in a very real way. 
Most of us in this room understand what it means for us to set ourselves upon that cornerstone that is Christ. And it's not about a bunch of rules. It's about recognizing we have a God who's good and loves us and submitting to him. And we do the same things. We know when we do the things that we shouldn't do. Right? We recognize the importance of being a follower of Jesus and we know how to be obedient to him. It's not that we don't know. It's that we know it too well and we decide to do it anyway. We decide to sin outside of what God says is best for us anyway, even though he came to die on a cross on our behalf. And so today there's, there's two groups of us in the room. The first group is probably the bigger group. Those of us who've placed our faith in Christ but maybe are living more in a legalistic way than you probably should living in a way that kind of boils our relationship down to Jesus is kind of a checklist, things I have to get done. And these things themselves, like I've said, they are, not, they are not bad things. But your relationship with Jesus maybe looks more like not breaking the speed limit because positional authority told you not to. Not because you want to be obedient to the creator of all things. If that's you this morning, in a second, I'm giving you a chance to, to respond to that, respond to God accordingly which would simply be to repent of that sin and ask him to be gracious as you do your best to follow him and line yourself up on the cornerstone of his son for the rest of your life. So that's the first group. There's another group in here who maybe you don't even realize that God loves you enough to get killed and thrown out of the vineyard for you. See, the error took on the wrath of man. And beyond that, and even in a more real way, the error took on the wrath of God so you could be with him forever. And I think we kind of just glaze over that because we've got our, our vineyard taken care of and I don't want to threaten the status quo. Maybe you've not met, committed your life to Christ and maybe you haven't made a profession of faith. If that's you this morning, I would, I would implore you to do so if the Spirit is leading you because being obedient to a loving Father is way better than submitting to positional authority. Amen, church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we're, uh, God, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to be obedient to you, for even giving us a choice to do so. And God, we recognize you're sovereign. We recognize you're above all things, and you know exactly everything that's going to happen, but man, God, allow us every single day of our life to just position ourselves against your son, the cornerstone, the stone that was rejected, that was thrown out, thrown out of the vineyard, that we would be willing to align ourselves on him every single day. And God, for those in the room with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, who maybe, maybe, maybe we've boiled down our relationship with you to a bunch of rules, if that's you, just take a second and just repent of that. Just, God, I'm sorry for turning you into a checklist. I'm sorry for my worldview not being completely viewed through the lens of your word and your son. And God, make me obedient because I love you, not because I have to. And then maybe for the other group in the room, maybe you haven't yet made a profession of faith with heads still bowed. 
maybe you haven't made a profession of faith and you just, you think to yourself, I, I want to be obedient to a God who is loving, who is willing to send his son on a cross for me, willing to die on my behalf, suffer the wrath of man as well as the wrath of God simply so I could be with him forever. If that's you this morning, I would just ask you to pray along with me. In the quietness of your heart, simply say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I admit I fall short every single day, but B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for me, to get thrown out of the vineyard for me. And C, I would choose to follow you every single day of my life. That would again set myself on the cornerstone of your son. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.